Hi, and welcome. As we look at our last in our series of 168 Rhythms That Lead to Life, today we're focusing again on community, and I invite you, if you have a Bible, to go to 1 Peter chapter 5. That's what we're, we are going to be looking at today. So author Howard Snyder tells a story. Once upon a time, there was a man named Sam who was fed up with the institutional church. From Sam's perspective, the church was so locked in tradition, he saw no spiritual freedom. It's hopeless, he said. I give up on the institutional church. So Sam gathered together a small group of like-minded friends and, you know, we're going to throw out all the institutionalism, have a simple, unstructured, New Testament church, said Sam. And they all got together one Sunday, all 11 of them. They spent unhurried time just sharing, singing, praying, and studying the Bible. It was great. Everyone was excited. This was the first time in a long time for most of them that they had experienced such free, open fellowship, and the group felt drawn together and spiritually strengthened. This is what the church is meant to be. As it came time to break up that evening, Sam said, well, this has really been great. I think we've got something good started here. Can we meet again next week? Everyone agreed. Same time, same place. The practical question of space and time again. This new experience was worth continuing. And so it seemed a new type of community was beginning. The group grew, diversified somewhat, but had to meet various needs as they arose. What about childcare? What about time and place of meetings? What about leadership? What about the cost of materials? In each case, arrangements were made so that the group could function smoothly and would have not to make the same minor decisions over and over again. It worked. The group prospered. But, Snyder asks, was it unstructured or non-institutional as Sam had initially hoped? Of course not. The group quickly developed its own structure and it inevitably took on an institutional form. And per perhaps the forms were, you know, they were different, maybe even better than those they left behind. But serving the true purpose of the church, the structures did indeed appear. Says Snyder, all life must have form. Life without form is sick and dies. It perishes because it cannot survive itself. That's the way it is with all life, whether spiritual, human, or botanical, for God and his creation is consistent. Today, we are looking at a passage of scripture that assumes this. As we look at 1 Peter 5, there's three points that I'm going to make. God has a relational structure for his people to flourish. Each person has an appropriate part to play in that. And humility is the key ingredient. So let's begin. God has a relational structure for his people to flourish. In God's story, followers of Jesus immediately become members of a community called the church. We are called to live in this interdependent relationship. You don't sign an application, check a box for this. It happens automatically. Jesus said to Peter after Peter received a revelation of who Jesus was, on this rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. This is the gathered people that Jesus is totally invested in, and so it should be with us. As we begin chapter 5, Peter is writing to Christians who have been geographically scattered, but Peter assumes wherever they find themselves, they will gather in community. You know, over the last number of weeks, as Ukrainian families have settled into Abbotsford, that these Christians have found it so important to gather together. In the midst of a traumatic and radical uprooting, you really see the value of Christian community. What a parallel. Scattered, Peter assumes God's people will still gather. 
And in that gathered community, Peter also assumes that there will be recognized leaders among them called elders, of which he was one. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. The apostles considered a church without elders, plural, elders, as incomplete. As new churches were forming in the movement created by the Holy Spirit and expanding into geographical regions, Paul writes to one of his protégés, Titus. To Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, a Greek island, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Do you see it? The church was considered out of order, like the sign over the church was not working properly until a recognized leadership called elders was put into place. The term elder was broadly understood then as it is now to refer to someone who is of older age. But in the Christian church, an elder in particular was a man who consistently demonstrated over time a certain kind of character and lifestyle. Paul wrote to Titus the kind of person he was to appoint as an elder. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordinate, and now he calls an elder by another term. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul writes a similar description in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 3. Elders are to be highly charactered men who are above reproach both in the Christian family and in the broader community. This is what we are looking for as we discern who is to lead among us. But we should all aspire to be like this, even as elders are also to be known as having a good grasp of the word of truth. This is important so that they can instruct and they can correct error. In the Bible's book of Acts, we have this story of the Apostle Paul saying goodbye to a group of elders from the church of Ephesus. It's emotional. They know they will probably never see each other again. And in goodbyes like that, the words you speak are important. They carry weight. Saying goodbye, Paul gives some strong instruction to these leaders. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. We are in a day when Orthodox Christian faith is being challenged, not only from without, but from within. Beliefs that have been held to as right and true for centuries are being questioned and disregarded. With the flood of information online, you can start reading a perspective, divorced from any observance on your part to discern like how this actually works in the life of the person who is teaching. And algorithms start to support this view as you take interest feeding you more supportive information. It, it's so easy to lose your way. 
I hope you see the danger. If ever there was a time to be tethered to a local church where you can observe the lifestyle and character of those who lead and teach, where you can discern the truth in community, now is the time. We have all experienced and, or probably known leadership in the name of Christ that has been harmful, even abusive. We live in a fallen world. But can I encourage you, just like you wouldn't let a bad meal ever keep you from eating again, don't let an experience with leadership that has left you with a bad taste keep you from pursuing that which is right and good in the local church. Peter wants the best for the church. So Peter challenges the elders in chapter 5 to lead well. This is what we should be looking for and aspiring towards. If a church is going to be healthy, it begins at the core. But each person has an appropriate part to play. Elders are to lead. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Two activities described by Peter for the leaders are they're interchangeable titles for the position of elder. So follow the logic. In baseball, one who pitches is a pitcher. In the church, one who shepherds is a shepherd. We also use the term pastor. They lead, they feed, they care, they protect. One who oversees is an overseer. We also use the term bishop. They supervise, they manage. So we have these terms, elder, shepherd, pastor, overseer, bishop. They are used interchangeably. And within these leaders, we see some segmentation. Paul also writes to Timothy, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labor deserves his wages. In North America and in Central Heights, typically we label elders as those that oversee and are responsible for the big picture, the, the vision. Others that are carrying out the day-to-day -day ministry and doing the bulk of teaching, we've called pastors. And Peter outlines how these leaders should play their part appropriately. They are to exercise their leadership with the right attitude and motive. Verse 2 again, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Leaders are to be an example as they follow the example of their overseer, Jesus the chief shepherd, and they should never lose sight that their leadership and authority is a designated, delegated authority. We will give an account to God for this. Do it well, though, Peter says, and you can expect an eternal reward for your faithfulness, the unfading crown of glory. I've told you this story before, but it so illustrates what we're talking about today. I was leading two men from our church on a cycling route. I, I took them out to the area uh, in Bradner, where there's this beautiful lookout overlooking the lower mainland. And they hadn't been there before, and we got to our destination. It was beautiful. And then as we were getting ready to head back a different way, I, I told them the plan. I said, go straight for a long ways, and then eventually we'll make a turn east. Well, we started off, and I decided to lag behind and let them lead, lest wind resistance for me, right? 
We had only traveled like a few minutes when we encountered our first intersection, and as we did, the one up front slowed down, making a motion like, what do we do? Which, which direction? I motioned him ahead, like, like, keep going. And then I sped up to get beside him to trash talk him a little bit. I said, you didn't listen to me. To which he replied, we're not just supposed to listen to you, he said. Sheep follow their leader. Got me. That's exactly what Peter is telling us. You aspire to be a leader in the church? That's a good thing. You want to lead in any capacity? We're all leading somewhere, aren't we? To lead well is not to domineer over others, get them to do what, what, we, what we want them to do so we don't have to do it. To use people for your advantage, to lead well from a Christian perspective is to lead by example so that others can see where they should go, how they can walk, walk in step with Jesus as you are. And I'm so grateful for the pastors and elders I get to co-lead with in this church and the many men and women in Central Heights that I could truly say to someone new in the faith, follow them as they follow Jesus. We need examples today, people who inspire others that although Christianity is not easy, it can be done joyfully, faithfully. Watch me, follow me as I follow Christ. God has a relational structure for his people to flourish, the church, and in it, each person has an appropriate part to play. Peter also writes, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Peter uses the phrase, be subject. It's a verb that means to bring oneself under another, as under another's authority. In the ideal scenario, the leaders lead as under the leadership of Jesus, and the congregation or church family is under their leadership. No question, there are twisted leaders that use this scripture in a way that was never intended to be used. We are not talking about like a blind subjection that opens up a person to harm. We are not talking about a church family in which there are no discussions and wrestlings together with direction and decisions where appropriate. But there is alignment. In any organization and family, at the end of the day, Decisions have to be made, and without compromising love for Jesus and his truth, it's inevitable that there will be an occasion where we'll have to surrender our opinions and attitudes in some way for the good of the team we call the church. I've played a lot of sports in my life, and I can tell you the most talented team on paper is not necessarily the team that wins. Great teams buy into a system as they allow their coach to lead them. They're united. And we all want to be part of something special with Jesus, don't we? Jesus said, a house divided against itself shall not stand. So the question is, will we position ourselves to be in the church and laying aside our bent to individualism, serve with our gifting, support and empower godly leaders to lead well, and as they discern a path to follow Jesus, then align ourselves to follow along with them, a united, powerful force. In a healthy church, we don't do this blindly. There's good dialogue, but it occurs with the absence of bickering and criticism. The, you know, the behind the back statements like, I don't like what they're doing. I don't agree with the decision. We have an AGM this weekend at Central Heights. And the fortunate thing is, I don't feel like there's some pressing tension in the air. This is a good time to talk about this because our obedience to God in it will have its times of testing, subjection, alignment, this requires something, doesn't it? Humility. Humility is the key ingredient. Humility is seeing ourselves rightly in the light of the God of the Bible. 
Humility is not insecurity. Humility is not self-degrading. Jesus gave us the greatest example of humility as described in Philippians chapter 2. And there it shows that Christian humility exercises a conscious decision not to grasp for power or seek self-exaltation, but to purposely bring ourselves under authority of another as Jesus did to the Father for the sake of the good that it would bring to others. As Jesus said to his Father in the garden before his crucifixion, not my will, but your will be done. All of us will have situations and relationships where we have the opportunity to humble ourselves. We all have institutions and relationships where we, with our eyes on Jesus, need to bring ourselves under the authority of others for God's sake. Kids to parents, citizens to government, employees to employers, wives to husbands, 1 Peter chapter 3. We humble ourselves to do so. This is not a popular message, but it is a gateway to God's grace. Peter writes, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How clear can you get? You want to open up the tap of God's grace? Humility is the way. You want to shut yourself off from God's grace? No, worse, even worse than that. You want to have God working against you, opposing you? And yes, Peter is writing to Christians, just be proud. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Humility is the key ingredient. Humble relationships in the context of church is the gateway to God's grace. And humble relationships in the context of church is the way we resist the enemy. Peter reminds us we have an adversary. There is a spiritual entity in the world. The devil is real, and he does not want you to make it as a follower of Jesus. And the devil certainly does not want the church to function in the way that Jesus intended. Peter characterizes him as a prowling lion. My brother-in-law has lived in South Africa, and he's told me stories about lions. Lions do most of their hunting at night, dusk or dark, but during the day they're often scouting out their prey. They're looking the prey over, checking them out. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. In context, check your humility. Check how you are in relationship to others, in relationship to God. Pride makes us vulnerable. Nowhere in Scripture are we told to fear the devil, because greater is he that is in us than is in the world. We are to be careful. Watch. Be sober about this. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, which includes humbling yourself under the authority structures God has ordained. The devil wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy us. And what is our pathway to success, to overcoming? It's not shouting at the devil. It is to walk in humility. James 4 echoes exactly what Peter is saying. But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James quotes the proverb as well. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In the relational structure God has given to us, called the church, humility is the way we resist the enemy. It's understandable sometimes to be disappointed in the church. Like, I get that. No church is perfect. People make mistakes. We hurt one another. 
whether intentionally or not, we get wounded, we become bitter. And we can isolate and alienate with the poison of unforgiveness festering in our soul. I have yet to meet a person, though, thriving in their relationship with God who is really down on the church. Because remember what we saw in Acts chapter 20, the church is made up of people for whom Jesus shed his blood. With all the church's failures, Jesus is committed to the church, just like in all my and your failures, he's committed to us too. Aren't you glad for that? Let's be part of the solution and not the problem adding to the church's demise. Resist him, the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So when we embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are grafted into the family of God, called the church, and we are put into a scenario whereby we are immediately, we have an enemy called the devil, and this will inevitably lead to times when we experience difficulty. We will all suffer, Peter says. It will be the common experience of living life marred by sin and subject to the attacks of the enemy. Don't be surprised. Don't think that you have particularly done something wrong. The same kinds of suffering is experienced by brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Humble relationships in the context of the church is the way we persevere. In addition to pride, one of the ways we become vulnerable to Satan is in the area of discouragement. We need one another. When you're fighting it, it is for me to encourage you. And when I'm fighting it, it's for you to encourage me. This is the prevailing power of the Christian community. We weren't meant to do this alone. Sometime over the next few days, if it hasn't happened already when you are watching this, a team is going to win the Stanley Cup, Canada's beloved sport of hockey's highest achievement. It's tough to win. It is so grueling. And when the winning team walks into their dressing room and takes their equipment off for the final time this season, it will be revealed how many of the players were playing, were playing hurt and bruised, but persevered through it. And now, full joy. And the celebration reveals the depth of what it means to push through, to do it together, to not give up. There is no question it was worth it. Peter wraps up the section with words of great hope. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. As we submit to God and walk in his steps, even though our experience has difficulty and suffering written into it, the grace of God that is sustaining us now is coming even more in just a little while, Peter says. I love that phrase, a little while. It's the same words are translated in Revelation 12 to talk about Satan's time of influence left on earth. His time is short. His destruction and God's redemption of all things is coming soon. The end of all things is at hand. Suffering will be over, then glory. For the follower of Jesus Christ, for the church, as we walk together in humility, persevering together, it will all be worth it. To God be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.